Hello there and welcome to the Storymakers Institute. Conversations, analysis and big ideas with those who create the world's stories. If you haven't yet signed up as a subscriber, come and join us. The storymakersinstitute.substack.com is the website where you can gain access to podcast episodes, written posts and a handy email that drops into your inbox whenever a new episode of the show arrives. Today on the show, Mayu Kanamori, a Tokyo-born artist living on Eora country, otherwise known as Sydney, Australia. She takes photographs, makes collages, films and edits art documentaries, writes plays, performances and poems. And in this episode of the Storymakers Institute, she shares her doubts about storytelling, her frustrations with happy endings and dinner parties, and talks about breaking out of the mould of your own biography. This is the Storymakers Institute with Joel Carnegie. But I have a lot of doubt about storytelling. Storytelling as an art form for a very long time um, has been uh, tied up to a formulaic story arc type way of storytelling. And I just, I think things are changing now for the better, but, you know, stories are about life and it's not neat. And often the formulaic storytelling demands the storyteller to make it very neat. There's almost in a way an expectation from an audience's perspective that the story will go in a certain way and it will, there'll be a happy ending and everything will be okay. Like, do you think, do you think people look to story to, to kind of offer them comfort in the sense of like, it'll all work out in the end, even though life, you know, we're all heading in the same direction? I think there is an expectation, if not a happy ending, at least a kind of a neat ending. And that has to be some kind of a, a learning process or, um, you know, resolution of a conflict. And I just think that my well, life's not really like that. You know, on a day-to-day basis, sure, we try to resolve our conflicts. And sure, we try to learn something. And of course, we want a happy ending at the end of the day. Life continues, you know, there's the following day and the following day. So it's about, well, when do you end the story? Maybe you end the story when that particular moment when you do come to a realization or um, there is a happy moment. But in reality, life continues the following day. And there's no getting out of life either. So it's a <laughs> so in a way, it's a kind of falsehood. Uh, that we're placing on ourselves or maybe a, a restriction or a kind of a, this feeling of being kind of boxed into these, the sort of more formulaic approach. But I wanted to kind of go back a little bit before we continue on this trajectory, which was talking about the ideas of the archetypal stories and uh, and where all this kind of comes from, this formulaic uh, structure of story making. Do you have any perspectives on that? When you hear of certain stories such as, you know, maybe in the culture I come from, which is Japanese, um, there are creation myths, for example, like there are perhaps in um, uh, Western mythologies or Indigenous mythologies here in Australia. And um, 
they don't seem to have neat little endings. Some do, but mostly not. You hear the stories and you think, well, 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 well. so what happened to our hero in the end? And But often it's not there. So maybe it wasn't there a long time ago. Maybe it's a more recent um, uh, phenomena to have a story arc with a resolution at the end. I wonder if it comes in the kind of the age of scientific rationalization, you know, it's a, a period of history that has kind of come upon us in the last couple of couple of hundred years where all of a sudden we're sort of searching for the answers for pretty much absolutely everything and uh, and and it won't stop until you get to the bottom of uh, the sort of formula behind the, uh, the the kind of mysteries of life and I feel like there's something mysterious about about the uh, the mythic and and the ancient stories um, that is kind of difficult to grasp when you're attempting to rationalize it through your mind in that way. It's my thoughts on that. <laughs> is there anything you want to add? <laughs> it's just my theory. It's just a theory. I don't know how this topic came up because I actually brought down things I was going to say, which has nothing to do with any of this. I was going to talk about how I... Uh, <laughs> Uh, my process of creating stories, and we're just we're just basically saying this is all just irrelevant. <laughs> I, I didn't mean. To. I, I I prepared to, to talk to you about my storytelling process. I love it. Well, can we get to that? But I want to lean in even further to what we're talking about. Yeah. So my summer reading. Um, has been a book called The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible, which in itself is a glorious title. My more, The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible by Charles um, Eisenstein. Uh, very interesting uh, reflections. And one of the things that this, this book talks about, this idea that perhaps some of the challenges that we've found ourselves in, climate change, division, blah, 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 um, <clears throat> are as a result of uh, exploring the... Uh, the edges and the extremities of separation and that in order for us to resolve and to solve some of these uh, enormous global challenges that we're facing right now one needs to think more around the collective as well as this I, this concept of age of reunion or interbeing and there's a comment that he makes in this story, which in this book, which talks to the idea of the way in which certainly Western story in its contemporary sense um, looks to the idea of struggle and conflict as the source of drama and that, um, that as a result, the stories that are created and have been created over the past, say, 100 years, let's kind of call it that, or slightly longer, but um, certainly modern story has all of these kind of formulaic elements, and I would I would argue that um, that struggle and conflict are part of that. Of course, there are myths of of great struggle, but um, but just to sort of hone in on this, and that that in a way, as a result of us seeing the world through the stories that we encounter, is contributing, or it could 
potentially benefit us, but is contributing to the to where we are now and the way in which we see ourselves and the way in which we act and interact with the natural world as well as the world around us and the people and the animals and the you know everything that kind of exists in this space. And until we change our stories or until we consider um, alternative approaches, that 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 story will still kind of play a key role in kind of holding us locked in this this status of um, of where we are now. That's so interesting, and I agree. Yes, that's I I, I hadn't actually thought about it like that, but I, I think that's there's something in that. It was something that sparked in me, and I thought, well, that's really interesting. And then I kind of went off on a bit of a side tangent, and something which you may have some experience in. I'm not entirely sure. Is uh, the uh, the Japanese story structure, uh, the four part, the four act story structure, Kisha Tenketsu, which departs from the idea of conflict as being the kind of primary driver of action, but rather the the twist um, that comes much later on in the story, which kind of then veers us off into a different direction. Now that you mention it, I think there are Japanese films and novels that work around that. And I wish I, if I knew I was going to talk about the subject, I would have brought you names of like I'm thinking of this particular film I only saw last year, which it was a story of a couple who organized a uh, what do you call it? They uh, like a restaurant in the country. They moved from the city to the country, and they have a restaurant and some accommodation there. And yes, that was in in four parts. And it's just about different people who come and stay at the inn and people who come and eat at their restaurant. And yes, there are there are some conflicts, but um well they're not a driving force. You know, there's there's a father and a daughter that lives locally that comes to the restaurant to eat every now and then. Um, the mother has died, so they're sad. Well, that's a conflict, but that doesn't really drive them to action. That's just a fact of their life. And there are other people that come in, someone falls in love, and someone comes and stays because they're trying to get away from their lover. So it's there, people the conflicts are acknowledged, but in a very kind of gentle, matter-of-fact way, as opposed to that becoming um, the major force in the story. And and it just unfolds, the film unfolds in a gentle way um, without this drama. <laughs> you know, it's, it's more to do with, well, it's, what people are like in in reality, and also um, I think whilst we're um, on to um, discussing uh, issues with storytelling, I think that often um, and and it is changing nowadays, but often um, the characters are necessarily uh, one or maybe even maybe two-dimensional but th- there's 
it's lacks in um, finer nuances and how we change from moment to moment. And because, well, once again, we have it's because we have to fit in neatly into a time given to tell that story, for an example. I hate going to dinner parties because people will sit around taking turns telling stories. And I was like, can we just have a communal dinner where we commune with each other's lives and not listen to each other's stories? I often find in stories, this is sort of like the functional aspects of the individuals, you know, like these these characters are here to, to achieve certain functions in order for other people to be affected by their presence and therefore that sets off the chain of events for something else and, and on and on we go and there's this sense of like heightened experience all around just maybe because the storyteller is terrified that someone's going to be bored and therefore um and therefore you can't possibly have a <laughs> situation where there's there's no opportunity to be bored i mean heaven forbid um uh boredom uh, <laughs> and and then i wonder also you know critically uh we've been served this soup for so long that any kind of alteration for this is also deeply as disturbing to the establishment of the way in which kind of stories are meant to exist in this world whether it's film or stage or text or whatever that um that you know if you sort of sit in the pocket of what's kind of chugging along right now in the zeitgeist you're probably going to be okay but sort of straying too far out you're either going to be kind of ignored rejected or you know or it could be a masterpiece of course it's the alternative uh which (laughs) which is certainly certainly possible but um I do like your idea of a communal dinner party, and I and I and I hope to be invited to one of those these days because I <laughs> I think it'd be much more interesting than having to listen to someone you know grandstanding about their the the dramas of their of their life. I think it would be a, an enjoyable experience. But how you cultivate that, I'm not sure. <laughs> Another thing I think about when I think of storytelling is whether um, every someone said that. Uh, Everybody really only has one story to tell. And this is why, for an example, you like a particular author and you keep reading them. And it's different characters, different, sometimes even different genres or different um, uh, era it's set in or a different country. But the story is the same or very similar. I'm wondering about that. Uh, what do you think? Mm. Well, I mean, I, if you're looking at, say, from a perspective of a writer, you've clearly kind of locked in on something uh, that uh, has had some kind of commercial success, so therefore repeating it potentially guarantees you a sort of straightforward way of being able to do your follow-up work. And you know what? I, I've noticed it a couple of times in reading some enjoyably trashy novels. I remember reading a one book recently, which sort of comes to mind, names won't be named, but where I got to the third book of this author and I was like, this is so boring. There's nothing I haven't read already in the for the first two books of this sort of thing. And I just, I just sort of stopped engaging with the author in general because I was like, well, this is just now being... Uh, feels like we're just now on the, the wheel and we're the wagon wheel and we're going round and round and round... Uh, and so I'm thinking, therefore, that perhaps money has to be involved here. The question of money and the way in which kind of money is interconnected with 
the, the modern story and the requirement to be successful <laughs> financially for all concerned, for all involved, whether it's at the box office or whether it's in the number of books that you sell? I think it might not be just money. Um, I think in the case of perhaps authors, you know, money for the publishers makes sense. You know, that will be published because people buy the books. But uh, often um, I think, and this includes myself, I'm continuously questioning myself over this, is um, there's a kind of a obsession we have about identity and um you know I'm, I'm a fine example of somebody who um keeps working on this heritage-based identity but you know in australia because because of our history here um to do with settler colonialism with with the presence of the indigenous peoples and newcomers constantly coming um, identity is obsessed about and therefore that what well, when we tell our stories it's tied into that in a kind of a branding sort of way so uh, it's not always you know it's like uh, I have these values and I believe that these things are certain things are important in life and whatever that is, it might be you're telling and retelling the David and Goliath story over and over in different, um, different characters, different settings, different artworks, different mediums. It could be some other type of archetype story, but it's because we identify our identities and our branding to ourselves, I'm not necessarily just thinking about PR in the corporate world and how to be successful. I think we kind of start believing in our own PR, saying, I am this sort of person, therefore um, I tell stories like this. I wanted to go back uh, just talking about this, the idea of identity and that being, you know, it's kind of key conversation that is sort of happening at the moment, particularly in this country as well as other Western countries. I wonder if it's happening in, in Asian countries and in countries in Africa in the same way. I think, um, yes, uh, just in the last maybe three years, four years, people in Japan, for an example, are using the word identity. Um, but nowhere as near as it's not, it's, you know, no one in Japan goes and gets a DNA test, for example. Actually, funny you say that, um, because I recently went and took a DNA test. Oh, what happened? What happened? <laughs> the reason why um, I took a DNA test was I've been doing quite a lot of research on my own family story. And, you know, for the majority of my life, I've been completely unaware of kind of where we've come from. And my mum and I've been doing a lot of research and there's something particularly grounding about the idea of actually knowing kind of where you've come from in the world when you're not from here originally. And so what uh, was uncovered was unsurprising in terms of having Celtic and Scandinavian background, but rather uh, the knowing of that then kind of made me feel uh, like I sort of knew where I was in the context of where I was from in this in this new way that hadn't 
previously kind of come over me. So I actually thought it was incredibly helpful, but I'm also not particularly interested in identity either because I feel like it then boxes you into the particular kind of frame of reference that people find either popular or um, people, you know, that are current, that, that is, that has, that holds currency at this point in time or whatever the situation may be. I think we're all far more um, dynamic and, and interesting than to be all placed in a very neat box. And I, I feel like it does offer limitations when, um, when that is all that you uh, can offer, according to the world, is this sort of small slice of the pie of, of, of life's experience. But uh, you may disagree. Do you find that um, focusing on identity in your work as a storyteller is limiting or do you find that it actually offers you great possibility? I think that um, focusing on identity it offers me an anchor. It offers me funding by the funding bodies. Yeah. Um, offers me something that I feel, at least in Australia, um, something that I could say and contribute and be heard. It's definitely limiting, but... Um, I guess uh, it would be hypocritical of me to just say, well, we've got this identity obsessed ways and it's limiting and it's awful when I have actually cashed in on it, which is the truth. It's, it's not clear cut, you know, so I don't think it's, I think it can be limiting. Um, I've always enjoyed it when, um, Fellow artists have asked me to join their projects, which had nothing to do with being Japanese. Always enjoyed it. It gives me a breather. But whenever I start a project, it always seems to um, be something to do with the Japanese experience in Australia. And it wasn't always like that. But those are the ones that got funded. And those are the ones where the press wrote about and therefore it's stuck. And I now know at my age that if I continue on with that, I have a better chance of getting it out there in the world. Mm. But yes, it is limiting. Mm. Yes, it's sort of, as the way in which you put it there, it's, it's, it's both creates possibility, but it also, it, also, <laughs> it also has this sort of limiting factor behind it, which is, which is quite interesting. We haven't talked anything about the work that you do, and I feel like we need to do that now. My name is Mayu, uh, Mayu Kanamori. I live in Sydney, and I was born in Tokyo. I'm an artist. I also call myself a storyteller, despite my healthy doubts about storytelling. And I often tell stories to do with the Japanese experience in Australia. It's very narrow, but uh, and small. It's very niche, 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 as niche as niche can get. Uh, I don't worry about mediums. I was originally a photographer, and I did that as a trade. Um, but yeah, I write poems, plays. I make performances, I take photographs, I 
make video. I also do some radio work. And I'm currently making collages. As someone who, who works across so many different art forms, do you find that people are confused by people who have storytelling capacity across multiple mediums? And how do you sort of navigate that in the way in which you describe your activity around a, a dinner party? I think there are many people who uh, do well in different mediums. Are There's more of more people like that now. But on the other hand, when you look at artists and history, you know, you do. If you look, read their biographies, you find out that they have done many things. It's just that they're known for something. Like John Lennon is known for his music, but he obviously did other things as well. Being known for something in one particular area is not necessarily means that that's the whole the whole picture, right? That's right. That's right. So maybe it's. Yeah. Yeah, that's a different story, but it's a it's a good story. Mm. Also, I think I I when I was younger, I used to be a lot more frustrated because when I told someone that I was an artist, they might say something like, "Oh, have you exhibited in New York yet?" <laughs> and I'm so niche that it doesn't I don't fit in that. And also I was actually making performances at the time. So I wasn't exhibiting as such. I was um, making performances, which is something else. But um, nowadays, I think I I get around that by, because I, I say, well, I make uh, work to do with the Japanese experience in Australia, which is a specialist way of, categorizing myself which mm. so that people could get a handle on that <laughs> well by saying that you created the kind of world in which you exist or can exist in, in and then the media doesn't matter so much yeah that's right yes but i'm, I'm trying to do new things different things <laughs> as well i'm trying to but it doesn't always get up so yeah if you if you had a uh, a magic wand and you had a, an ability to sort of change something about the way in which we tell stories and the process behind story creation and therefore what people experience and therefore how that shapes their views of the world and therefore the world at large. What would you kind of hone in on as being something you'd like to change? Uh, well, I think I would like to listen more and feel okay about speaking slowly. <laughs> mm. That's think, really nice. Yeah. I think there's a speed thing, you know, you you don't listen, I don't listen, I speak over people or I try to say something very quickly or I'd like to learn to be okay about speaking very slowly and also taking the time to listen and not only speak all the time. Mm. Yes, not having to fill the silences. Something very nice about that. 
it's almost like the silence creates the opportunity for the the spark to keep going. I think so. I um, think that, well, I learned today from you about um, the whole idea of this conflict-driven storytelling or expectations of stories, how that contributes to a more divisive world. And until we change that, um, we're not going to solve things like the climate change or the wars mm. and the general othering that we do. <laughs> mm. I think if we can just see people as they as they are it's, um, and to just sort of sit quietly together is sort of probably what the world needs right now. It's uh, up to us to have the courage to sit and do nothing would be how I feel about things generally. I'm with you. The Storymakers Institute is produced by the space company on Wadawurrung Country. Post-production by Dom Evans. Share an episode with your mates on the socials, leave us a review on your favourite podcast app, or tell us what you'd like to hear about or who you'd like to hear from at thestorymakersinstitute at gmail.com. I'm Joel Carnegie. I'll catch you next time.